and how good it is to have uh, some more of our college students back. It's great to see everybody. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 12, John 12 verses 1 to 8. And as you're turning there, um, to introduce you, or not introduce, but to uh, remind you of our series the past two months, uh, we've been in called A Life Pleasing to God. Um, And the basic encouragement of this series is to really get us to reflect on that question, am I living a life that is pleasing to the Lord? And you may be sick of hearing this question by now, but it's a tremendously important question for believers who know God and are known by God to ask themselves, as I I evaluate my life, as I reflect upon the Lord, is my life pleasing to him? And so we're reading John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, and we're reflecting on God's pleasure in devotion. Uh, Now, this passage is a beautiful passage, very rich, and in order not to uh, cheat you guys in my reflections and preparations, I I realized that uh, there's just no way I could preach this in one sermon uh, unless I went an hour and a half, and I don't think that would be okay with you, and so um, I actually am splitting this, and we're going to look at it over two weeks, uh, this Sunday and then uh, at the end of the year, because next week is Christmas Sunday, and so if there are portions of the text that I have and hit. Uh, don't be alarmed. Don't be, um, you know, think, you know, Andrew's topical now, um, that we will get to that section. So don't worry about it. Um, but we're looking again at this text to consider God's pleasure in devotion. So please rise and stand with me as we read and receive God's holy word. Hear now the reading of God's word, John 12, starting with verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Friends, would you join me in in one more prayer as we ask God's blessing in this hour. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you instruct us and you teach us and you encourage us and you build us up. And so, Lord, you know this day who is in this room the condition and state of every heart, those who are near, those who are far, those who are low, those who are high. And so by your spirit, would you take your word and would you bless us richly by opening our eyes and our hearts and our minds to receive what it is you intend to give to us this day. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, I've mentioned this to you before, but I'm originally from Baltimore City where my parents for 30 years uh, owned and operated a seafood store in a public market um, in the city. Uh, They just retired uh, about after 30 years of of service there for um, 
uh, this, this, this past summer. And uh, the reason I mention that is, you know, as I reflect upon that, that was much of my life, them working at this store. Uh, there's a lot of blessings and there are a lot of curses. Uh, the blessings are very clear. Uh, if you've ever had Maryland blue crabs, uh, we got them for free every season. Uh, we got shrimp and salmon and oysters and clams and all you can eat and it was just a glorious glorious way to grow up uh seafood galore you know fish in our home uh was more uh, of a staple food than even rice was uh there would be days that we ran out of rice but we never ran out of fish it was as if uh jesus personally lived in our home and daily he was reenacting that miracle of providing endless fish until we had our fill um so that was the wonderful blessing, but of course there's an awful curse that accompanies that. Uh, virtually nothing we owned uh, did not have the scent of fish on it. Um, you know, sort of like God's sovereignty claims all of creation is his. Uh, the smell of fish claimed everything that we owned. So from our cars to our home and from our skin, you know, to our, I think our DNA just smelled like, like fish. And uh, it was inescapable. When I went to college, uh, the smell followed me. Um, for I attended a college about 15 minutes away from my parents' seafood store, and so the deal was uh, that they would pay for most of my college tuition, and every Friday and Saturday for four years, I would have to go and work for them. And so the smell of fish followed me into the dorms and the classrooms, and my textbook smelled, and it was just the most embarrassing thing sometimes to be hanging out socially with friends and someone would just go, what's that smell? And, you know, I would just have to, oh, it's this guy, what's wrong with him? And point and finger blame, you know? So you can imagine the desire to, to mask and escape the aroma. Um, and so in college, my best friend was Cologne. <laughs> I remember I wore particularly polo blue and cool water, if you remember what those are. Um, but really anything would do, as long as I was masking, covering that wretched stench. Uh, and so it wasn't uncommon to, when going out in public, to make sure to spray myself, to cover the smell. And I bring that up because that was a very common practice at the time of the Bible to cover your own scent with something stronger. Now remember the setting of our text. Temperatures were hot in the Middle East. The sun was blazing. Everyone was sweating. It was flowing like a river. Now there were no showers. There was no running water. There was no deodorant. There, were no, there was no toothpaste. There was no mouthwash. And as a result, people in this culture smelled. Now that's not a judgment. It's just a fact. And therefore, it was a common practice when you entered someone's home and they were the host that they would place a, a dab of oil or a dab of ointment on your head, on the face of a guest, in order to cover the bad odor. But not only for when you were hosting, but also during uh, burial rituals, the body would begin to decompose, and so you would wrap it in different aloes and different aromatics, and you would try to prevent the smell. Uh, this is John 12. If you remember right before in John 11, when Jesus uh, healed, raised Lazarus from the dead, you may remember that he's standing at the tomb, and he says to remove the stone, and Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days days. So both in hosting and in burial rituals, you wanted to cover the unpleasant smell with a better aroma of different spices and scents. And therefore, in this culture, fragrances and perfumes were a big deal. And they are a big deal in today's story. 
today's story is about a woman named Martha who lavishly pours out ointment, a type of perfume on Jesus. And it's an act that's so controversial that people are offended at what she does. Interestingly, even Jesus' disciples are angered by it. And in contrast to that, Jesus' remarkable response is to receive her devotion and to defend her actions. John 12 has two parallel accounts, one in Matthew 26, one in Mark 14. And in Mark's account, Jesus responds in this way. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole earth, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And how true Jesus' words are for 2,000 years later, we are still talking about what she did. Now imagine that kind of statement, that kind of compliment given to anybody. Wouldn't you want something like that said about an act that you did for Jesus? Don't you want to do something so beautiful for him that not only does Jesus rise up to defend what you did, but to declare that he'll be remembered for the rest of of history. When everybody in this room is surprised and shocked and actually blaming her for her foolishness, her bad stewardship of the use of this oil, Jesus receives her act as a sign of devotion. And Jesus not only praises Mary for it, but he's actually pleased with it. Now that leads me to ask this question today. What acts of devotion are you doing for Jesus? Don't you want to do something beautiful for him? As you reflect on it, when, when was the last time that you did something beautiful to honor Christ, to show your devotion to him? So as we study our text today, here's the gospel truth. Here's the one-sentence summary. True belief in the gospel produces acts of devotion that pleases God. True belief in the gospel produces Acts of devotion that pleases God. Here's what I want to do today with our time. I want to set up the context. I want to explain a little bit of what's going on in our text. And then I want to consider three acts or three things about Mary's devotion and then three ways that the gospel produces even greater devotion in our lives. So we're going to study the text and then we're going to look at three things that Mary does in her act of devotion and how actually if you believe the gospel... It produces in you a greater act than even Mary's here. So first, let's consider the context of the passage. Uh, Verse 1, we're told that Jesus came to Bethany and he meets his friends. Now, if you're not familiar with the narrative, uh, Jesus has uh, two groups, uh, mainly two groups of close friends. He has his disciples, and within disciples, he has his three. And then he has uh, this trio of siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They are very good friends of his. And in verse 2, we're told a dinner party's thrown for Jesus. A dinner party's thrown in honor of him. Now, the reason is because everybody remembers the last time Jesus was in town, the last time he was in Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And at this point, this is Jesus' greatest miracle, his greatest sign that he has performed. John's gospel is very interesting because it is um, organized around seven signs of Jesus. And this is the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus. It's kind of the highlight of Jesus' earthly ministry. 
Now they throw a party for Jesus, and we're not told here in John, but we're told in Matthew and Mark that the party is at Simon the leper's house. Now in order to really understand what's going on here, you need to look at the context of this passage. This is uh, John chapter 12, verse 1, but if you look right at the verse above it, at the end of John eleven fifty seven, here's what you'll read. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now what's happening is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, they are all furious at Jesus. They are angered by him. He's getting too popular. And so they give orders to the public. If anybody sees him, you must report him. You must tell us where he is so we can go arrest him, right? Jesus, interesting, he's a wanted man. He's wanted. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. And what's beautiful about this story is right after that statement is made, we're told of a dinner party, and all these people are in attendance, and yet none of them rats Jesus out. None of them is a snitch. You know, they hear in one ear, did you hear the religious leaders want to know where Jesus is? Oh man, you know, they're a scary bunch. They're powerful, influential in society. You should tell them where Jesus is if you see him. On the other hand, they hear, hey, Jesus is coming by Simon Peter's house tomorrow at seven o'clock. There's dinner. Make sure you're there. And hearing the two, what do they do? They choose to honor Jesus over listening to the voice of the enemies. They say, you know what? I'm not going to listen and obey the Pharisees and the religious leaders. I'm going to love Jesus. I'm going to be loyal to Jesus. I'm going to honor Jesus. And I bring this up because this is what this means. At this dinner party is a company of many men and women who have such incredible love and devotion and affection for Christ. All these people, none of them wanted to rat Jesus out. They were all there. They might get arrested too if they're found out. But they're there because they love and they're loyal to Christ. And yet, amongst that group of people, Mary's act of devotion is highlighted. Her act of devotion rises above them all. You see such beauty and depth of her commitment to Christ and what she does. Now, some of you may know this about me, but um, if if you don't, I am a pretty big fan of the Star Wars films. Um, Without, you know, shame, I've waited hours in line to to see them on opening night. Uh, Almost everyone that I can remember, I went on opening night on Thursday evening, and then I went right again Friday morning, and then probably a third time on Saturday. No shame. I'm devoted to Star Wars. I love the films. And yet, when I pre-order the ticket about a month in advance is about when you can do it, and I show up three hours before the start of the movie so that I can get a good seat, I am still, shockingly, not the first one there. I'm the 50th one there as there is a huge line, and I always just go three hours early thinking no one's going to be here, and you see a line and you say, wow, these guys. I thought I loved Star Wars. These guys love Star Wars. These guys are the real heroes. And then, in front of them, you got the guys in the Chewbacca and Darth Vader costumes, and you think, now they love Star Wars. Amongst this group of people who are willing to come hours before to get a good seat, I'm thinking I'm devoted, and I show up, and I go, wow, they are devoted. They love Star Wars. All these people at the dinner party are gathered. They love Jesus, right? The disciples are there, and they gave up everything. They followed Jesus for three years of their lives. 
You have Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus was, was literally dead before, now raised to life. He owes his very life to Jesus. Martha, Martha has been shown tremendous patience by Jesus. And Jesus personally ministered to her when her brother died. Martha loves Jesus. Simon, Simon's called Simon the leper. When nobody else wanted anything to do with him, when they didn't want to touch him, Jesus went toward him. Jesus drew near. And there are countless others present, and yet among all of the followers, all the lovers, all the worshipers of Jesus, Mary's devotion receives the spotlight. It is highlighted, for it is high and above them all. So imagine the scene with me. It's a festive dinner, lots of catching up, lots of encouragement shared, hugs being passed around. But Mary's mind is preoccupied because she's brought with her her family inheritance, the family heirloom of ointment in this alabaster jar. Now, John doesn't call it an alabaster jar, but if you look in Matthew and in Mark, it's referred to it there. So everyone is laughing, everyone's having fun, but Martha, she's waiting. You know, she's waiting for the right time to do what she has set apart in her heart to do, which is to express and display great devotion for Christ. And so we don't know quite what quite was going on. Maybe she was waiting for the laughter to die down. Maybe she was waiting for a pause in the conversation or a transition in the evening's plans. But whatever it is, something happens when the time is right. We're told in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now you can imagine the scene. Everybody is shocked. What is happening right now? What is this commotion? What is Mary doing? And if this was today's culture, everyone would have their cell phone out and recording this. That's an outrageous thing, what she does. We know it's outrageous because if you look at the responses, it's very interesting. John records only Judas's response. And Judas, we're told, is so appalled, he actually rebukes Mary. He basically says, you foolish woman. Don't you know how much money we could have gotten if we sold this? Don't you know how much we could have given to missions and mercy? Matthew tells us what the response of the disciples are. And the disciples, they wear their hearts on the sleeves. They actually say in response to this, they say, why this waste? Waste, this is for Jesus. They say, why this waste? Mark, on the other hand, doesn't tell us Judas or the disciples, but he tells us everybody, every guest responds, and he writes that they are indignant, they are angry, and then it says they scolded her. What do you think you're doing? Now, what would you do if you were there? How would you react? And what's very interesting is Jesus is reclining at the table. And he has a smile on his face. And he is pleased with what she has done for him. In fact, he jumps to her defense. What are you doing? Do you know how much this could be sold for? Why this waste? People scolding her and Jesus leaps to her defense. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. How can what Mary did stir so much commotion and response? How can it lead to such opposing responses? Basically, how does this one thing Mary does split the room from those who are angry, rebuking and scolding her on the one hand to a Jesus who is impressed and pleased with what she does? 
So that is what we're going to focus on for the remainder of our time. Let's consider three things about Mary's active devotion, and then the way the gospel can produce a better devotion in our own lives. So first, the first thing we see is the sacrificial nature of devotion. Verse 3 begins, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now the pound here is not the, the, the U.S. pound, it's the Roman pound. The Greek word is litra, and it refers to about 11 or 12 ounces, which is appropriate for, you know, a nice big bottle of perfume or ointment. And Judas says about it in verse 5, he says, don't you know that this could be sold for 300 denarii? Now a denarii is a day's uh, wage for a common laborer. So 300 denarii, 300 days worth of labor, which is roughly a year's salary. Now think about that. That's incredible. A year's salary is what she gives. Now, we have a white elephant tonight, um, but what if we change the rules of this white elephant? You know, this white elephant's to encourage you not to spend money. It's just to bring something in your home. But what if we change the rules? What if right now I was saying, you know what the rules are tonight? The gift you bring has to be equivalent to a year's worth of your salary. What if those were the conditions? I don't think anybody would show up. <laughs> I don't think anybody would come tonight, except for the college students, because they don't make money anyway. So, you know, they, they would show up. You know, this ointment, it's expensive. It's, it's outrageously expensive. In fact, it's so expensive, it's, it's almost offensively expensive. And the reason is, uh, we're told that this plant, uh, it, it's made of pure nard, which is basically, it's, it's from a plant found in the uh, northern mountainous regions of India. Right? So it's an imported good. It, it, it's exotic. It's rare. And it's pure, meaning it wasn't diluted. Now, what Mary brings to this dinner party, this ointment, this is something that you would only use for special occasions, something this expensive. It's only something that you bust out every once in a while. Black tie events, weddings, anniversaries, first dates, prom, the eighth grade middle school dance, you know, the important things in life. This is what you wear this to. And it's pure, so the detail of it being pure means you don't have to use a lot. Just a small dab, a small drop will do, and that's more than enough. And yet Mary, at this very simple dinner, takes the alabaster jar and she breaks it before Jesus so that everything comes flowing out. In her love and devotion to Christ, they're so grand that without hesitation, she sacrifices everything for him. Every last drop. There's no occasion of it as she dropped it and then she was scooping up and putting it in her pocket and trying to save some for herself. No, she saw Christ. She valued him so much that the most valuable things in her life, she laid it down at his feet. Now, this ointment, why would she be in possession of a jar of ointment that's worth a year's salary. And that seems kind of foolish. Why would you do that? Diversify, you would say. But in ancient time, this was most likely a family inheritance or heirloom. Basically, if you were ever in trouble, if you ever uh, needed to make ends meet and you didn't have enough money, you would dip into this jar because you could sell it. So this was her financial security. This was her stability. And yet she's willing to give it up, to lay it at his feet. And as the whole perfume flowed out, nothing was kept for herself. Every last ounce, every last gram given over to Christ. And what we learn is that devotion that pleases Jesus is devotion that is sacrificial. 
It's not a devotion given to Jesus out of abundance or excess or comfort. Not saying that you can't do that, but let me ask you, are you ever willing to give, to offer Jesus an act of service, an act of devotion that that hurts a little, that hurts a little financially, that disrupts your life, that causes some discomfort, that interrupts your schedule, that tires you out? You know, friends, there's a big problem when you serve the Lord and your attitude is, it's okay, I had time anyway. I'm glad to do it. You know, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to serve. Oh, Dan, you need help on Friday night youth group teaching? Oh, I'm, my plans fell through. Yeah, I'd be glad to do it. You know, if you say that, then friends, I don't question the helpfulness of your service, but I do wonder how pleasing it is to God. God's saying, oh, why, why thank you. I thank you that your plans were canceled and then you thought of me. Thank you that you had a little bit more energy, a little bit more time, a little, uh, a little bit of, of free moments in your schedule to give me that. Thank you. Well, did you sacrifice because you had time or did you sacrifice because you made time? Is that really sacrifice then? You see, we observe in Mary that she wasn't giving Jesus the minimum. But she wasn't asking for what was enough what was appropriate? What can I get away with? She was giving freely, all of it, sacrificially. So the question is, is your devotion to Christ marked with this kind of sacrifice? When you do something for him, are you often thinking, what can I get away with that'll still be enough? What can I give and still have some left over for me? Do you calculate and ponder the minimum you can do for him, or do you ask, what's the maximum that I can do for him? You know, I'm calling on you to give a devotion that is sacrificial, but to be honest, friends, how does that happen? You know, as a Christian, if the gospel has sunk deep into your heart, it'll produce this kind of sacrifice in your own devotion to Christ. How? How? Because if you believe the gospel, then the realities of his sacrifice will have overtaken your heart. You know, the gospel doesn't say that Jesus um, negotiated with the Father. God, I know you're calling me to give up my life, but does it have to be all of my life? I know my body's supposed to be broken, but I mean, isn't a finger enough? Can I get away with an arm? I don't think Jesus was calculating and crunching the numbers of this much suffering versus this much people times the elect equals. I don't think the Lord was doing such calculations. Rather, Jesus sacrificed himself, all of himself for you. Not looking for bare minimum, but giving all of himself so that you would be forgiven. Friends, to know this, to to really believe this, to sing about it and mean it, for it to ring true in your heart, for it to latch onto you will inspire you to a kind of devotion in which you are courageously sacrificial to him. Your devotion will only be sacrificial to the degree that you understand the sacrifice of Christ for you. Second, the servant nature of devotion. The servant nature. Verse three continues that Mary took the pound of perfume and she anointed the feet of Jesus. Jesus. 
Now, Mary does the culturally unthinkable here and touches the feet of Jesus. But this isn't just to the shock. This isn't, this is to the horror of everybody in the room. Now, let me tell you why. Feet in the ancient culture. You know, feet now can be pretty gross. When I went to Cambodia, one of the the first things they say is, there's two things you absolutely cannot do. What? Don't touch somebody on the head, right? And don't put your feet near someone's face. (laughs) Well, I don't see myself doing either of those, but, but thanks for the reminder. Why? Feet, we know, just are unclean. But at the time of the Bible, it was a whole different level. You know, Jesus Christ was a perfect man. You're right. He was the only perfect man. He was uh, blameless. He was flawless in his life. But you have to know, this applies only to his character who's standing before God. That he was without fault, he was completely righteous. But I don't believe Jesus' perfection meant that when he walked the dirt roads of the Middle East under the scorching heat in his open-toed sandals, that somehow his feet maintained a perfect pedicured, you know, appearance. Not at all. Jesus was a perfect human, but in his body, right? He too had feet that were blistered and cut and, and scarred and sweaty, and dare I even say, they were smelly. Right, he was human. He really would think about it. He was human like us in every single way with a real body. I mean, his toenails needed to be trimmed. He had those hardened, calloused heels where you need that little egg thing to, to scrape it. He had ashy ankles. You need to offer Jesus lotion sometimes. I bring this up because Jesus, his feet, as Mary goes to his feet, were just like everybody else's feet. They weren't super nice. They weren't, he wasn't a foot model. It was culturally understood. Everyone knew the feet were dirty. They were filthy. They were lowly. They were the lowest part of a human, not just you know, physically, but, the, but they were understood to be dirty. In fact, in many regions, in many provinces in the ancient world, uh, slaves, household slaves were called to serve their masters, but they were... Um, There were certain laws that even slaves had rights that if the master told them to wash their feet, they could refuse. Even the slaves were given rights that they didn't have to wash their master's feet because this was beneath any human to do. And yet, Mary stoops lower than any slave would dare to go in order to express her devotion to Jesus. Now pause on that for a moment. Mary willingly does what even slaves were legally protected from doing. Here lies the beauty of her devotion. Because Mary stoops this low, not because she was legally mandated to, not because Christ demanded it of her, because she willingly made herself a servant of Christ. You see, a slave will only do what he has to do. If you're protected against something, then you would refrain from doing it. This is all of us. How many of you want to know what your job description is so that you know the duties you're called to do, what you're actually responsible to do, and what you don't have to do, what you can argue saying, this is not required of me. But Mary, out of her devotion to Jesus, doesn't consider anything to be duty or obligation, but out of her willingness, she loves and serves the one that she considers beautiful and worthy. You know, it's true. If you're dissatisfied with your job and you um, dislike your boss and you disagree with the um, trajectory of your company and then you're asked to stay overtime to work but there's no pay, how many of you would stay? 
None of you. But if you have a true passion for your work and you love your boss and you have a conviction that what your company is doing is good for the world, then you're more than willing to give of what's asked of you. And this is exactly why Mary can bend down and touch the feet of Jesus to anoint it with perfume. This is why Mary's act of devotion is more beautiful than any slaves or servants could ever be because of her tremendous love, overflowing love for Christ. And so the question is, if you want to do something beautiful for Jesus, if you want to please him in your acts of devotion, you must serve him. There's this mentality you need to have that there's no service that's too beneath me. That there's nothing that I'm too dignified or too above to engage in. That there's no day that is off limits to him. That there's no request that he can't make of my life. Are you at a place where you're willing to do anything for him so long as it pleases him? To stoop to the depths to do anything as long as it would put a smile on his face. And you know, this exhortation is powerless if you try to do it on your own, because I've tried. And what prevents you from bitterness and anger? Yeah, many of you serve in many ways, and I am so thankful for that. But isn't there times that you're doing a little, a little good, and then you get a little bitter? Oh, do I have to do this? Why, why do I find myself doing this? The only way that you'll be empowered to do that is if you understand the gospel. You see, because the gospel doesn't, the gospel takes your heart. Your heart is like a piece of metal. And if you bend it and you keep bending it, eventually it'll snap and break. But the gospel is like a little flame that you hold up right underneath it and you soften it so that it bends, so that you're willing to serve You know, the gospel says that Jesus Christ was willing to serve us in acts far greater than just kindness. But he gave up his life for us. You know, this is John 12. In John 13, Jesus is going to do something absolutely stunning, very similar to this passage. And I believe John puts them right next to each other. Jesus will get on his knees and he will begin to tend to the feet of his disciples. And you look at that and you go, what an act of service, right? What dignity this rabbi was willing to let go of in order to wash the feet of his followers. For no rabbi, no master would ever do that. But it goes even more than that. What heights the creator was willing to condescend to serve his creatures, How incredible. But even more than that, how the Holy One would come and stoop to touch the feet of sinners. And yet as stunning as that act was, it was always meant to point to another. We're told in Philippians 2 that Jesus took on the form of a servant. He took on human flesh and he did something so much more outrageous and outlandish and offensive than Mary touching the feet of Jesus when he took upon himself the sin of the world. And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5 that he became sin for us. You know, the pure and holy one saw that there was no leper too dirty to touch. And there was no adulterer who was too shameful 
to redeem. And there was no tax collector who was too corrupt to love. There is no sinner too guilty to save. There is no cross too painful to endure. And so he died for us by becoming a curse for us. He stooped lower than a servant. You see, when you encounter Jesus in this kind of way, it produces in you the same ability to serve him and others in this kind of radical devotion. You believe this about Christ, it'll empower you and release you to do a very beautiful thing for Jesus. And let's close with this third, the humble nature of devotion. The humble nature of devotion. Mary completes her anointing by wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. Now let me tell you just how absurd this is. Right, the first two actions, each one of them independently could stand on their own. This act of stunning sacrifice, that was enough. Nobody would doubt her love for Jesus just by looking at that. Her anointing his feet with oil, that stood on its own. That was beautiful. No one would question her devotion to Jesus. But Mary isn't about what's enough and what's minimum and what I can get by with, but she's looking to do the maximum, the most she can in her power. And so she breaches another cultural taboo when she lets her hair down. Now, letting your hair down, that's not like, meaning like, oh, she got comfortable with Jesus. She let her hair down. That's not what it means. When she let her hair down, everyone would have shocked in greater horror. Because in Mary's culture, in the time of the Bible, and in fact, you could still see it in the Middle East now, letting down your hair in public was a scandalous act. That's why if you go to the Middle East, many still have their hair covered. In fact, it was a Palestinian Jewish custom uh, that required women to keep their hair covered so that if you were a married woman and you were seen walking in public with your hair down, on that spot, your husband could divorce you. Or if you were a single woman and you were walking around with your hair down, you could be caught and stoned. It may seem foreign to us, But if you enter into the time of the Bible, the mindset of those uh, in this culture, you understand that hair was considered an intimate thing. You only let your hair down in the privacy of your home, in front of your husband. And so you actually get a um, picture of this, of this worldview when Paul is writing in uh, his letter to the Corinthians. He's writing in chapter 11, verse 14, 15, and he writes this. He says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. It is her glory. A woman's long hair is called her glory. It's the crown that she wears. So envision Mary at the table. She lets her hair down. Everybody is shocked and stunned. But it doesn't stop her. She takes her glory, her hair, and she touches the lowliest, filthiest part of a person, the feet. And what is Mary demonstrating? She's humbly acknowledging Christ surpassing worth and beauty and glory. Because she's symbolically stating that her greatest and highest glory, her hair, is still beneath the feet of Jesus. And that the glory of his feet is high and above the crown of her hair. 
And Mary lays aside her pride and in utter humility wipes the oil from off his feet. You know, by breaking the alabaster jar before Jesus, Mary offers him all that she has. But by wiping his feet with her hair, Mary offers him all that she is. Friends, are you willing to offer yourself up to God in this kind of way? Or do you take the best things about yourself, your highest glory, to use it to serve and to wipe the feet of Jesus. Because if you're humble before him in this way, you lay down your pride, you lay down your glory, your accomplishments, all that you've become, all that you're acknowledged to be, and you find that the only proper place for them to be is at the feet of Jesus. You know, too many times if you're like myself, you compete with him for glory, for prominence, for importance. We want to take the spotlight from him. We want to make it about ourselves. And if not entirely about ourselves, if he gets the glory, we want to be in the picture too. But devotion says that you fall at his feet and you humbly confess this is the best place to be. There's no place I'd rather be than at your feet. And the question for us is how in the world will our vain, arrogant, self-centered hearts ever be willing to sit humbly at his feet. And it's only when the humility of Christ dawns on you that you will ever be humble in your devotion to him. You know, here's the thing about looking at Christ's humility. You can't simply look at what he's doing to appreciate how humble he is. You must look at from where he's been to where he is now to understand the chasm in between, to understand the depth of his humility. Only when you perceive the heights from which he came and then the depths to which he sunk will you understand the humility of Christ. Only only when you understand the riches of heaven and then the poverty he undertook for you will you understand his humility. You look this season at the manger that Christ was in, the feeding trough, the animal feeding trough that Jesus was found in. Oh, what a humble birth. Friends, you have no idea how humble that is until you see the royal throne from which he came down. And therein you see the humility of Christ. You sense his humility only as you hear the angelic choir singing his praises, glory to the one who is And then you hear the cry of the crowd saying, crucify him. Then you see the humility of Christ. You will never humble yourself before him. Devote yourself in this kind of humility until you see his humble devotion towards you. And so when this gospel pierces your heart, it breaks any pride in you into a million pieces. Just like a chisel taken to a piece of marble can break it into many pieces, so to a vision of Christ's humility will break your heart into a million pieces until they find itself at the feet of Jesus. This is what our text is about. We studied Mary's devotion. We see her sacrifice. We see her servanthood. We see her humility. But you're not let off the hook. Because the point of this is not simply to admire this unattainable portrait of Christian devotion. 
Oh, that was so great that she did. I admire that. How beautiful. Oh, no, friends. It's the encouragement and the exhortation that you too can not only do the same, but even greater. Because Christ has shown you all of these things in his life, his death, and his resurrection. If you've built your life and all that he has done for you, it will produce in your life similar acts of devotion, equally and more sacrificial, equally and more servant-like, equally and more humble. And then you'll realize that there is no such thing as going too far for Jesus, doing too much for Jesus. There is no end or limit. There is no gift too expensive or precious to give to him. There is no act or service that's too low for us to do for him. And there is no pride or glory that you're not willing to give up for him. When we understand the gospel, it produces in us great acts of devotion that pleases God. So I leave you with this. What is a life that is pleasing to God? A life lived in gospel-driven, gospel-produced devotion to Christ. Let's pray. You know, I invite you now just to take this moment to respond as the Spirit works in your heart, as He moves in you, as He brings to remembrance certain things, moves you to repentance, however He may be leading you. Let's take this moment to respond to the Lord in prayer. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forever. Amen. Would you hear the words of dismissal? Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.